Neil deGrasse Tyson, our beloved personal astrophysicist, has a thought-provoking take on the development of our species' curiosity about space. Homo sapiens seems to be the only species that sleeps on its back at night. Our ancestors surely did. This means if they woke up while it was still dark, they'd be facing up. And without any artificial light, they'd have seen the most dazzling canopy of stars against nature's total darkness. Is it possible this supine position is why we eventually came to question our place in the universe? It's at least a very poetic thought. If you've ever spent any time studying the sky, you probably noticed something else Tyson mentions, that none of the constellations look anything like the mythical figures they're said to look like. Considering that the naked eye was the strongest lens available for eons of evolution, and the stars were the greatest distance, as well as the greatest height anyone could see, it's tempting to wonder if the mind that looked out of those eyes saw them as stars at all, or whether it was induced into some dreamlike state that gave a constellation like Orion the projected image of an archer, or the square shape of Pegasus the image of a winged horse. For example, the Pleiades, the small blue stars bunched close together near Orion, were symbolically called the Seven Divine Sisters, thought to have been turned into stars by Zeus. It's also useful to remember that myths are only myths for those who don't live in them. They're reality for the ones who do. Since physicists have explained the sky to us, our previous reality has turned into mythology, and we no longer explain the nature of the stars by subjective impressions. But it's interesting that we still look up instinctively when music moves us as though its source is coming from above. And still, there's hardly a sight as immediately enchanting as the night sky. As you think about these things, does something like music begin to play in your mind's ear? If it does, what does it sound like? What kind of music expresses this celestial height? Perhaps it's something like this.
kiss, another kiss. The blazing Pleiades sink beneath the waves. Night advances. Come, Venus is shining. These are the concluding lines of Act One of Verdi's Otello. Desdemona and Otello gaze up at the sky after a storm has passed over Cyprus. Woken up in the middle of the night by a brawl in the street that Otello has put an end to, they stand under the stars for a few minutes before returning to bed. When composers want to describe celestial images in music, they tend to stress its height, like this. The line, the Pleiades sink beneath the waves, makes one wonder if the sea is flat enough in front of them to reflect the stars. This is the exquisite climax of a love duet, all the more extraordinary for its understatement, and it prepares another masterstroke of understatement at an analogous point in the last act. There, Otello will sing a lamentation over Desdemona's body, that she was, quote, a pious creature born under a malignant star, end quote. Verdi has made the experience of looking up at the cosmos a climax to a duet. It's a special effect, and the main element that achieves it is its register, the pitch level or frequency of the notes. In the last episode, we talked about dynamics, or volume, and while loud and soft might be obvious enough, the timing and placement of them by composers may not be, and I tried to give some examples of how that's been done. And that means dynamics can be a tool you can think and listen with. Register is another element and tool for your ear that, like dynamics, is obvious by itself, but its use may not be. Register has an associative purpose, among other things. It matches the visual sense of height in sound by high or low pitch. I suppose even without the translation, you'd have guessed that the violins represent a quiet vastness overhead. In fact, it's the combination of sustained high sounds and the absence of low ones that gives it the suspended quality one gets within a minute of looking up at night. Then, woodwind trills depict the twinkling of stars, or their shimmering image on the placid surface of the bay. Furthermore, this special effect replaces an operatic convention of Verdi's time. The year of the opera is 1887. Verdi was 73. In his earlier operas, no matter how intimate the scenario in the story is, the voice got the focus. Take, for example, the aria Il Balen from the opera Il Trovatore. The situation is similar. It's night. In a wooded area near a castle, a count named Luna, mark the name, is thinking of Leonora, with whom he's in love. He sings, quote, the radiance of her smile would outshine a star's. End quote. Here is how Verdi set this line and this imagery over 30 years earlier in 1853. <laughs> 
And it reaches its climax with this line, where he hopes she'll return his love. Notice how the orchestra vamps for him, and it's the sung melody that contains all the interest. Now it doubles his voice to emphasize the melody. This is the sort of music every other Italian composer would have written in the 40-year period between 1830 and 1870 to accompany the radiance of smiles or stars or indeed of anything else. This isn't a special effect. Neither is a vamp. The high and low registers are not used to a descriptive purpose. There's a main melody with orchestral accompaniment and maybe the orchestra doubles the tune at the climax. At this time, the song was about the audience's reaction and pleasure. You had success if the tune was catchy and they liked it, failure and booing if they didn't. Il Balen was a hit, as was the rest of Il Trovatore. It was one of the most famous operas during Verdi's lifetime. But by 1887, in Otello, Verdi is no longer thinking purely in these terms, of melody, of accompaniment, and the other tools of the trade he had spent a lifetime refining. He's changed the aim and method of achieving the climax. He transfers its focus from the voice to the orchestra, and register becomes even more relevant because the range available to the violins can more accurately describe this experience of stars than any visual effect in the theater. 
For that, you ideally need a planetarium, and maybe Neil deGrasse Tyson's voice. To do it with music, high pitches accompany stars. We're so used to this from science documentaries, film scores, and children's cartoons that we take it for granted. But it was in the 19th century that register became an expressive tool like this all its own. Not that it would have surprised Verdi's audience either. For example, when the French composer Camille Saint-Saëns wrote his Carnival of the Animals, in the section called the Aquarium, he depicted the zero-g of water in exactly this way, by register. But Verdi was coming out of retirement with Otello, and this sort of thing wasn't seen as exactly Italian music. More like a French or German thing to do. Italy had the expectation of hearing the familiar, earthy music of their old master. And with his melodic gift, the style of Otello was felt as something of a betrayal. Bernard Shaw reveals this in an obituary of Verdi when he writes of Otello. Quote, the real secret of the change from the roughness of Il Trovatore to the elaboration of Otello is the inevitable natural drying up of Verdi's spontaneity and fertility. So long as an opera composer can pour forth melodies like La Donna e Mobile and Il Balen, he does not stop to excogitate harmonic elegancies and orchestral sonorities which are neither helpful to him dramatically nor demanded by the taste of his audience. But when in process of time the well begins to dry up, then it is time to be clever, to be nice, to be distinguished, to be impressive, to study orchestral confectionery, to bring thought and knowledge and seriousness to the rescue of failing vitality. It is not until Otello that we get dignified accomplishment, the advance from romantic intensity to dramatic seriousness is revolutionary. End quote. In other words, why doesn't he just give us a tune to hum, like he did before? Why these special effects? Taking Bernard Shaw too literally risks being a victim of his ironic double-edged tone. At the London premiere of Otello, he wrote, quote, The opera is powerful and interesting. Don't miss it on any account. End quote. He was much too intelligent not to notice Otello's a new kind of opera but one doesn't always know if he's praising through ridicule or ridiculing through praise. Anyway, his critique concerns register without saying as much. It concerns every element of music, actually, but the properties of register particularly, which we'll understand better once we've examined register more closely. You might remember in the previous episode we talked about how music is made of phrases. Phrases are usually in four counts, and usually two or more phrases make periods, or musical sentences. 
What's the difference between how the phrase and period are constructed in Il Trovatore and in Otello? Listen to Il Balen once more, and you'll hear its phrases are in symmetrical counts of four, and they group into periods. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Because this symmetry lets you predict the next phrase's length, it gives the tune a momentum, a certain alertness and sobriety. Despite the fact that Count Luna's thoughts are private, because it was the moment the audience waited for, the tunes were written to draw their attention toward the period's end, sometimes with a high note. This is part of what Bernard Shaw is lamenting the absence of, it seems to me. Judging by his mention of this tune, Il Balen, and the other great Verdi hit, La Donna Immobile, not just a melody, but a symmetrical period with a propulsive lilt. That's because melody was a cherished ritual in Italian culture, so this is the sort of period that was expected. Every story, when it was made into an opera, was altered however it needs to be to allow for them, because tunes sold the tickets, as they still do. Words were not as important. You've probably heard these melodies before and know them well. How well do you know their words? But this kind of period would be completely inappropriate for the stillness of the sky captured in Otello. You might also remember Thomas Beecham's comment that great composers evolve just the right sort of music to accompany every word and action in a drama. And we've said before on this podcast that this is a cardinal rule of good operatic grammar. The rhythm of the music has to match the tempo of the thoughts through the story, which means you can guess what idea or emotion the composer is underlining by the rhythm and momentum of the music, or at least which ones he isn't. Here's a perfect example of how the style can change, but that principle remains the same. So you can get close to a composer's rationale if at any moment in an opera you ask the question, what aspect of the scene or drama is the music amplifying, and what elements make it sound like that? This passage in Otello is an effect of register first, and a phrase only afterward. The rhythm isn't shaping it into a phrase. In other words, the period that was once a melody has changed to being an effect that evokes an image, and you know this because the register demands your attention more than the rhythm. I think if you listen closely to this change, you'll notice Verdi's music now concerns what happens in the mind, even the psyche of his characters, not with what's traditional entertainment in the opera house. It's become introverted. The reason is, Shakespeare was Verdi's favorite author, and he wasn't going to upstage him by writing an old-fashioned melody. It's a question of decorum. Verdi wants Shakespeare's drama to penetrate first, and subordinates the music to it. In Otello, 
For the first time, the drama entirely precedes the music as a point of focus, and the style is made to fit this particular story. As we already said, for this, the orchestra is not just an accompanist, but also a palette of sounds in realizing the imagery and states of mind, and the register available to instruments is just one source of this. Psyche is probably not the way it would have been described quite yet, although its cognate psico was gaining use in Italy at the time. Being captain of a ship and the commander of a navy, Otello would know the sky intimately from navigation. We've just seen him not only come back from a naval victory, but maintain domestic peace with a few quick orders. Now we glimpse his personal world, the luminous Desdemona in her nightgown, woken up by the same noise, and his affection for her beneath the stars he knows so well. Tradition dictated this is the moment for both of them to rush down to the footlights and belt out some high notes for approval. Everyone knew then as they know now, when that happens, the singer stops being a character in a drama and becomes an acrobat in some vocal circus. Instead, Verdi points our attention not even on them, but following Shakespeare on what their attention is on, the Mediterranean sky. It's a symbol of their love in the only moment of serenity they'll ever get under it. This needs to be listened to differently, or rather it is listened to differently. The adjustment is the revolution Bernard Shaw mentions. I'm going to guess Shaw had a passing acquaintance with Shakespeare's Othello, and wanted to hear good old Italian opera when he was in the theater, not a singing Italian translation of Shakespeare, relatively speaking. And if I'm not completely off with that guess, I'll make a second one. Perhaps he doesn't believe Verdi would change his mind about Italian music and create instrumental effects more common in German music like Wagner's. In fairness to him, that's what almost everyone thought at the time, and on the whole, it's true. But while the effect would have been very different, or not different enough, with a good old tune, Verdi has kept the traditional features. They still sing their high notes, just softly, as though they too are part of the orchestral scene painting. The same use of register accompanies an awakening from a symbolic as well as an actual sleep in Act Three of Wagner's Siegfried. Just as her father Wotan had granted, Brunhilde would sleep on the mountain until discovered by the one who neither fears Wotan's spear nor the fire that surrounds the rock on which she slumbers. Siegfried, the one who knows no fear, has reached her, at his kiss, Brunhilde wakes from the sleep that makes her mortal. Wagner accompanies the kiss with one chord and her waking with the next.
Richard Strauss says of this passage, quote, The violin's trills depict Brunhilde's awakening as she looks into the light of the sun, enchanted and at the same time blinded by the unwanted radiance. Again, the register is indispensable to the effect and is used for the same end as Verdi used it in Otello. It depicts both the physical height of the sun and mountain, as well as what's happening in the mind of the characters, now even below their conscious awareness. The harps depict this by their rise up into the high register as Brunhilde gains consciousness. Friedrich Nietzsche was so moved by this passage that he says in his book on timely meditations, quote, The characters that an artist creates are not himself, but the succession of these characters to which he is greatly attached must reveal something of his nature. Wagner's characters are all correlated by a secret current of ennobling and broadening morality that follows through them. In the Nibelungen Ring, for instance, where Brunhilde is awakened by Siegfried, I perceive the most moral music I have ever heard. Here Wagner attains to such a level of sacred feeling that the mind wanders to the glistening snowcaps of the Alps to find a likeness. So pure, isolated, inaccessible does nature here display herself that clouds, storms, and even the sublime itself seem to lie beneath her. End quote. A very purple passage that, but not inaccurate, especially if one looks at Nietzsche's metaphors. We have no choice but to speak metaphorically when describing intangible, invisible states of inner change, like transcendent artistic achievement, maturing from unconscious childhood to adolescence, or going from sleep to waking, and we do so by describing them in upward-rising imagery. Mountains, clouds, icebergs, illumination, etc. Nietzsche sees the development of the man Wagner revealed here in his music. This is the snow-capped peak of a trend embodied in the characters of his earlier operas, which he now lists. In Nietzsche's own words, the virtue of fidelity was the navigating star that kept the better side of Wagner's personality faithfully abreast of his dark and tyrannical side. Quote, Looking down from this height on Tannhäuser and the Flying Dutchman, we begin to see how the man Wagner was evolved. And after many attempts to quench his many appetites, a star appeared, as soon as he recognized that he named it Fidelity, for he has graven its image and problems upon all his compositions. His works contain almost a complete series of the rarest and most beautiful examples of fidelity, that of brother to sister of friend to friend, of servant to master, of Elizabeth to Tannhäuser, of Senta to the Dutchman, of Elsa to Lohengrin, of Isolde, Courvenal, and Mark to Tristan, of Brunhilde to the most secret vows of Wotan. End quote. And one can add, in the case of Wotan and Brunhilde, also father to daughter. 
I can't help feeling that he's responding to the register and the stillness of rhythm when he was hit by this music. Wagner's music and Nietzsche's description have been wrought from the same metaphorical source. These experiences, too, are translated into music by register, because pitch level has this quality. The higher the pitch, the clearer it is and easier to hear. A new awareness is dawning on both Brunhilde and Siegfried, symbolized by the light of the sun, and Wagner's wisely decided this, too, shouldn't be done in four-bar phrases, but by the curious internal sensation of register change. It recalls with alarming accuracy the experience we've all felt, how a state of unknowing is remembered and felt like once we came to know. I'm laboring on these examples because, technically, register is more than an element. It's an entire dimension of music. A lot of other musical concepts depend on it. Register is the vertical dimension in sound. This is why it lends itself in Otello and Siegfried to vertical imagery. Every note has a register because it has a pitch, and that pitch is along a continuum of high and low frequency. Against this, you can add a horizontal dimension, which is the duration of the notes, time, another way of saying rhythm, which is another way of saying phrase and period. Music is conveniently written this way. Notes that are played together appear stacked vertically on the page, just as they appear in the mind's eye, spatially as height. And like English, notation is read from left to right, so rhythm and time are represented horizontally on the page. When musicians speak of a vertical sonority, they mean the relationship between several pitches sounding at once. So if I take three pitches and play them one after another, maybe over four counts, I get one, two, three, four. Or say one, two, three, four. I've arranged them horizontally. I have a rhythm and possibly a phrase or period. But if I play them together, or you hear what's low, middle, and high in pitch first, in other words, their vertical relationship, before you know their length and rhythm. In the absence of a rhythmic pattern, I have no phrase, no way to measure time, but what I lose in momentum, I gain in focus on pitch level. Another thing I gain is focus on the quality of the sound, the timbre or instrumentation. This is a great way of rendering feelings like longing, fear, memory, and ecstasy. It's exactly the rhythmic momentum that Verdi and Wagner have suppressed that gives passages like these the intimacy they have. What sense of time there is comes through absorbing the timbre and register, and the internal, mythical, or psychological associations become all the stronger for it.
both examples combine this with yet another element, the dynamics. As we saw last time, what's loud sounds closer, and vice versa when softer. This might constitute a third dimension of depth. This is how the crescendo at the moment of Brunhilde's awakening also depicts the ever-brightening light before she opens her eyes. Remember she's sleeping on her back. As it gets louder, it feels like the light is beaming ever more brightly down on her, perhaps as Siegfried's head moves aside after kissing her. By the way, just to refresh your memory, this is a combination of internal and external dynamics. Wagner has the instruments play louder at first, that's external dynamics, and once a certain volume is reached, he adds instruments to extend the crescendo, internal dynamics. It was Wagner's life goal to articulate this inner human experience in music. He built his own opera theater, the Bayreuth Festival House, specifically for this work and to that end. Nietzsche was present at its inauguration, and to him it appeared that at long last a much-needed curative modern ritual of theater had been born to rival the dramas of ancient Greece, Wagnerian music drama. At this time in his life, at any rate, Nietzsche thought it represented the birth of tragedy in his own century. Verdi had a similar aim, that an opera should go well beyond the entertainment of humming a tune on your way out of the theater. When Bernard Shaw doesn't get that tune, he either pretends to have or has little patience for what Verdi came up with. But the truth is, Verdi succeeded as well. You don't walk out of Othello humming the tunes, but remembering the tragedy of Othello, the Moor of Venice. What Verdi and Wagner brought to Italian and German opera was a psychological acumen that was absent before them. In their best works, it seems that all the elements of music have been refracted through that prism. As effects of pitch level, these are unbelievably imaginative contrasts of register, what's usually a rather unimaginative trick in the hands of lesser composers. Up to now, we've been talking about only the first aspect of register, pitch level, the one responsible for extra musical association. But register has two principal features. When you casually listen to an orchestra, it seems as if the thousands of notes you're hearing are in a huge range from highest to lowest. How would you measure how high or low along that range? How does a composer know? How high exactly are the violins in Otello? For that, you need the second feature of register. It's the second one that makes it interesting as a dimension, and you've certainly noticed it in passing on birthdays. By the way, you notice we don't decide on the starting pitch for happy birthday? Someone just begins singing at whatever pitch he or she does. Maybe you remember facing the other way when the cake comes out, so you're not the first to start singing happy birthday to the birthday boy or girl. Assuming you're the type who cares the song is in one key, let's say you notice the song is too high or low for your voice at that pitch level. 
what you'll probably do is to start testing up and down your voice for the right pitch in a more comfortable range. Happy birthday to birthday to you. What's happening in that first second when you're listening for the right pitch? You're obeying a law of register. Register is divided by octaves. It's not just a huge range with a gradient of low to high pitch. But you know another thing as well. If you have to search for a matching pitch in your voice, you know that you can sing happy birthday in unison with everyone in a higher or lower octave, just not in between. You don't want to be at the wrong pitch in the same octave. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. In other words, you understand the law of octave equivalence. Not only is register separated by octaves, but the octaves are equivalent. Octave means eight. Remember that music's alphabet is seven letters long, and they happen to be the first seven letters of the English alphabet, and they continue in a loop. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C, etc. Pick any note, for instance C, count that as one, and go up or down eight notes, and you'll arrive at the same note an octave higher or lower. C. D, E, F, G, A, B, C. Or C, B, A, G, F, E, D, C. Every time the alphabet segment of eight notes repeats, you have another octave. And yes, the alternate names for C, D, E, F, G, A, B are Do, Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, La, C. But since C is not a drink with jam and bread, you might have learned to say T. And that will bring us back to Do. That's all you need because the relationship is identical in the next octave in either direction indefinitely. That's why they loop. The loop is the eight-note range of an octave, and the octaves are equivalent. It's a little like standing between two mirrors that face each other. You can look infinitely into the reflection of the reflection of the reflection. The universe in each one is identical, but smaller or larger based on how far into the reflections you look. Now, assume these mirrors are set up above and below you, vertically rather than horizontally. Then each reflection upward is an octave higher and downward lower. Now, 
octave equivalence also means that I can sing the Star Spangled Banner like this if it gets too high for my range. The ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming, and the rockets red glare, the bombs bursting in air, gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. Oh, say. You can sing one part in one octave and change to another for a different part, and you still recognize that as the same song, even though the exact pitches I just sang are wrong if written down. This is really important. Octave equivalence preserves the song across all octaves. That's why, when you know the notes to sing, you can sing most anything, because octave equivalence means the song is preserved, whatever octave you're in. We'll see how composers are aware of this in a moment, and how valuable it is to know it. Children know the law of octave equivalence. When my sister was two years old, we had her imitate a scale, and she'd automatically transfer it an octave lower when it was too high. Nobody had taught her how to do this by that age, and nobody taught you how to do it either. Furthermore, if octaves are equal, that means that all the A's all the B's all the C's All of each of the seven notes of the octave are also equivalent. We have a name for this. It's called pitch class. All the A's, as an infinite aggregate, represent the pitch class A. All the B's, the pitch class B, and so on. We sing happy birthday, quote, in unison, even though my note might actually be an octave lower than yours but we hear it as in unison because all our notes are of the same pitch classes. It's why I can change octaves in the middle of a song. Pitch class is just another way of saying octave equivalence, only with one note instead of a whole octave. If you've followed me so far, you should have no difficulty in appreciating a paradox between these two features of register, pitch level on the one hand and pitch class or octave equivalence on the other. As the pitch level rises or falls, the notes move up or down in register, while in another way, they never move at all. The notes are merely repeating the same pitch classes every eight notes because the octaves are equal. The vertical dimension is a kind of multiverse, where each octave has an exact copy of itself except pitch. The importance of this is hard to overstate. It means there is a register-sensitive and a register-insensitive aspect to music. If Happy Birthday is played on a flute and a cello, the register-insensitive aspect is the tune. 
because you can recognize the tune as Happy Birthday on flute and on cello. The register-sensitive aspect is the fact that the flute plays it higher in pitch than the cello. Here we're using the terms octave and register interchangeably, and they're often the same. Each register is an octave, and vice versa when we say, I can't sing it in your octave, or your register. The same goes for the terms pitch and note, so that the pitch C is often the same as the note C. But register can also mean just range, as in the element of register that we're exploring in this episode, or the register of the string instruments. Hence, register-sensitive and register-insensitive means octave-sensitive and octave-insensitive. You just have to be careful to make this clear in context. These two properties serve different functions in music. Sometimes what matters is the pitch level, the exact octave. The Verdi and Wagner examples are like this. It matters very much which register they're in. Both have to be written high enough to suggest the stars or sun and are just wrong in a lower octave. As we said, these are not melodies, but musical effects associated with imagery by their pitch level. This is the register-sensitive aspect. It shows that musical effects are highly register-sensitive. On the other hand, Happy Birthday or the National Anthem can be sung in any octave or register and are just fine. The exact octave doesn't matter, even if you transfer it to another octave in the middle of the song. They're register-insensitive. As this shows, because melodies are preserved by octave equivalence slash pitch class, melodies are largely register-insensitive. Melodies are not the only phenomenon that move in this paradoxical dimension. If you think about it, octave equivalence slash pitch class is why different registers can harmonize. How else do two instruments or voices, without an overlapping range, ever play in harmony? If it didn't exist, a flute and a double bass couldn't play the same melody together unless by magic they got into the same octave. And for the same reason that we can sing in unison with different voice ranges. This is an extraordinarily important thing to remember when studying harmony and many other topics, and we'll recap the subject whenever it's appropriate. You can actually hear these two properties in combination. For example, listen to the exciting start of Act 3 of Wagner's Die Valkyrie, The Ride of the Valkyries. That opening thrust starts in the middle register and repeats an octave higher and another octave higher, then descends back down. Now I've done some editing and produced a sacrilegious one-octave version of the Ride of the Valkyries. That spoils a great effect, doesn't it? Removing the register change. Clearly, this is the register-sensitive part. The pitch level really matters. It's what gives it an arc.
That makes it a dramatic effect and gives it visual imagery. The Valkyries are warrior sisters. Their task is to pick up the bodies of heroes that are slain in battle and carry them to Valhalla, the home of the gods. They do this flying on the backs of mythological winged horses. They are in a storm. The thrust in the violins and woodwinds represents the gust of wind in their faces, as well as the flapping of the horses' wings. Put yourself in their saddles. Flying around the crags of the mountains, they'd see peaks and valleys from their various heights in the sky. Exactly. Just how are you going to show that on stage? Wagner helps you imagine it. By the pitch level. But that melody, the Valkyrie melody, is the register-insensitive part. You'd recognize it in any octave. It's preserved by octave equivalence, or pitch class. If you sang this music, that's what you'd sing. It might also be the only part you remember. You might not even remember what register it was in. Interestingly, our memory is often register-insensitive. You see, it's important to notice that pitch class is an abstract phenomenon. It has no reality in sound. You don't hear pitch classes. You only hear individual pitches. But it's as if there is a hypothetical single octave in the mind made of seven pitch classes that has no exact register. So when you recall a melody, you don't need to know what pitch you first heard it at, or even think of it. It gets even more interesting, though. For instance, you may have sung the following tune like this. That's the Blue Danube Waltz by Johann Strauss, Jr. The melody is two motives. One is da 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 dum, and the other bum 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 bum. The second motive begins on the same pitch the previous one ended on. Da 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 da, this note, bum 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 bum. Right. Not exactly. Listen to the original. See if you hear the difference.
those notes in the second motive are in a higher register. But you and I remember and sing them as though they're unisons, because they're the same pitch class. It seems as if we store melodies in a register-condensed form by octave equivalence into that hypothetical octave. This is similar to how memory condenses language to the gist. After reading a book or hearing a talk, you can recall the story or argument a lot better than the exact words. In the same way, you'll often remember a tune and forget its exact register. This is one of the reasons why people often feel a refreshing surprise on rehearing a familiar piece. You'll hear it again and say, I forgot how beautiful it is. It's partly because the sound doesn't come from the memory's condensed version, but emerges pristine from the original registers. It's out of this mysterious octave in the memory that we pull out tunes like Happy Birthday when we spontaneously sing. We should make a map of this vertical dimension, something to measure it by. Firstly, because listening to those thousands of notes, we're otherwise condemned to keep saying the high-high register, lower, a little lower than that, etc. And secondly, because the music's beauty shows itself more when we're aware of the registers, because music is actually organized this way. We measure it by octaves, of which in Western music there are seven. These are like latitude lines. The midpoint is the pitch middle C. This is where bold, unambiguous statements are made. To jog your memory from the last episode, this is the note Mendelssohn's wedding march began on. That's middle C. It's like the musical equator. Everything in the northern hemisphere above middle C is called the treble, and everything below in the southern hemisphere is called the bass. It's called middle C since it's roughly the middle of the piano keyboard, which is not right because on a flute or oboe it's not the middle of anything. But it is the middle of the symphony orchestra too. Dividing by octaves, the lowest C on the piano is C1. The next is C2. The next, C3. Middle C is also C4, and so on. So the first octave is the range or register between C1 and C2. This is mostly where double basses play. The second octave from C2 to C3 is where the basses and cellos play, etc. This is the more metric system-like way of measuring register. It's great for instrumental music. I like the clarity it gives of saying that Verdi's violins are playing in the sixth octave of the orchestra, between C6 and C7.
but there's also a more human proportion, or imperial system. We split the two hemispheres in half, and get four general regions which get their names from male and female voices. Taking Middle Sea again as the midpoint, the low treble is called the alto register, the range just above Middle Sea. The high treble is called the soprano. Likewise, the high part of the southern hemisphere is called the tenor, just around and below middle C. And the low part is also called the bass register. From the top, it's soprano, alto, tenor, bass. These are ranges of about an octave and a half, with some overlap between adjacent ones. Early in the 19th century, Robert Schumann's recommendation to the young was, quote, you should understand the compass of the human voice in its four principal sorts. Listen to them in the chorus. Regularly sing in choruses, especially the middle voices, end quote. Schumann wrote a lot of musical advice for children. Another one of my favorite aphorisms is, quote, never miss an opportunity to hear a good opera, end quote. They run the gamut, everything from the schoolmaster type of advice like, do not be afraid of the words theory, counterpoint, etc. They will meet you halfway if you do the same, and always practice as though a master were present, and lose no opportunity for making music in company with others, in duos, trios, etc. This will make your playing sweeping. To more worldly ones like, listen attentively to all folk songs. These are minds of the most beautiful melodies and will teach you the characteristics of the different nations. But he holds the young artist to quite a standard. Quote, Behind the mountains there also dwell people. Be modest. You have never invented or discovered anything that others have not before you. And even if you have, consider it a gift that's your duty to share with others. End quote. And then he lays this recommendation, my absolute favorite, especially given what he just said, quote, you must invent bold and new melodies, end quote. The division into soprano, alto, tenor, and bass is not just four pitch ranges. It represents a vertical relationship between four notes, or voices. This will illuminate a lot of music as we go on, as it helps you listen to multiple registers at the same time. That's essential because the type of music written for each of these ranges is often different. The most relevant question to this is, which register has the melody and which the accompaniment? For example, in what voice or register does the melody in Beethoven's Sixth Symphony begin? Try first to distinguish treble or bass, and then either soprano or alto or tenor or bass. Here's middle C again for your reference. It's in the treble, in the alto or low soprano mostly, 
and the bass registers are accompaniment. What about when the tune repeats in the oboe? It rises out of the alto register and goes into the soprano. What register has the tune in the right of the Valkyries, and which the accompaniment? is in the middle, in the tenor and alto, and there is accompaniment both above and below. But then I guess there would be much above and much below you of interest if you were flying on a winged horse. Imagery can even be the reason for the register of the tune, and how fabulously elaborate the accompaniment here is. In the alto and soprano, an even sopranino register is the woodwind trills as the storm wind, as we already said. The violins going up and down perhaps depict the flapping of wings and the sudden gusts. But if you listen down into the bass registers, you'll hear after four bars a galloping sound. Which depicts, I suppose, however horses move their legs when they're flying. It's quite the hypnotic vamp. This sound always reminds me of the 1981 film The Clash of the Titans. I get images of Perseus flying on the back of Pegasus. Then the Valkyrie melody comes on the trumpet and horn. Listen up and down. What are the registers telling your mind's eye? What sound picture emerges?
These are the eight Valkyries. They are the sisters of Brunhilde, to whom the Valkyrie of the opera's title refers. It's a scene of greeting and enjoying each other's presence again. The ones already on the mountain call out to the sky for their sisters to land their horses and tie them near theirs. The others land, and the mood among the siblings grows to general cheer. You can hear this in the register change. The tune that was played by brass in the tenor now goes all the way into the two lowest octaves, played by the double basses, while the mass of six, and eventually all eight, voices on stage sing in the treble registers above it. There's no effect like it anywhere else in the theater. There's a lot more to discuss with regards to this fascinating topic of register, and I have something to share with you that I think is very interesting about how the two properties of register relate, and how we hear through them or with them. But this is probably a very good place for an intermission, so let's stop now and we'll pick this up in Register Part 2. <laughs> 